thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and just interact with the stuff that's gone before that's brought us to this point. So I pray that you be glorified by everything we do here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, so, we are in, in a blank white screen. I'm sure it's coming. Hey. So our church history, and we're talking about the Napoleonic era, which is the beginning of the, of the 1800s. And when we left off last time, I, I promised that we would talk about the War of 1812. So congratulations, you're in the War of 1812. We declare war on Britain, and just as a reminder, as we discussed last week, amongst other things, uh, we were kind of torqued off with England because they kept impressing American sailors to join the British Navy which is technically legal, except that Britain had come up with a law saying, hey, if you're, not a, if you're not born in America, then you're still technically a British citizen just happened to be living in America, which means that since we can only impress British citizens to, to join the Navy, which, if you remember, impressment is you run across a British citizen, you clunk them over the head and say, welcome to the British Navy, because we need more guys. They said, yeah, well, we can also clunk Americans over the head. There's a number of things that they were doing, and we're like, nope, we're done with that. They also were demanding that we don't trade with anybody but England, because they were trying to stick to France, because they were at war with, with uh, Napoleon in France. And then they were also, the British were trying to stir up Native American tribes out west to put pressure on us so that all we could do was trade with England, because we really needed some kind of help. We needed some sort of trade, which is a weird way of looking at that, is that if we can, if we can stir up trouble for you, you'll work with us kind of a gangster mentality. But anyway, um, if, you, if you were here last week, uh, or, or not, but uh, one of the, the, the groups out west of Natives was uh, the Confederation of Tribes that were following Tenskwatawa, who, uh, who declared himself a, a, a prophet among the Native Americans, and his war hero brother, Tecumseh. So you got one guy who is turning people up saying, um, the Great Spirit is telling us we need to kill all the white people. Um, and then a brother who's actually pretty, pretty good at doing that. So it, it's, it's a dangerous combination, actually, to have. Anyway, so if you remember, we talked about the Little Turtle War and the First Barbary War and some of the heroes thereof. Here's why, in part, I talked about those heroes, because they're going to come back and be heroes of this war, too. Like Stephen Decatur, who was a hero in, in the First Barbary War, and now... He's a Commodore, and he's, he's leading a squadron of ships. Um, he captured the HMS Macedonian, which became the USS Macedonian, and we turned it against the British. And he, uh, and he sailed on the, in the flagship, the USS President. But then he lost the flagship in a fight, but he lost it in a fight against four British ships. So you, you go, there was one of you and four of them, yeah. And he, was, he tried to get away, but... Uh, he had successfully escaped the blockade of New York, and because of other people's mistakes, he damaged the hull in the process. So you go, you're in a leaky boat against four times as many ships. Yeah. And you almost won. Yeah. Okay. So when he, when he got thrown into prison, he was in prison in Bermuda for a while, but when he got back, he got the Congressional uh, Gold Medal, because even though he lost the flagship, he was really good at what he was doing. So that's why my hometown was named after him. That's where I was born. So i got to do a shout-out to the kid. William Henry Harrison comes back. This is a guy we keep seeing. He was a hero of, of Little Turtle War. He, 
He's the guy who last week was dealing with Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa in, in very effective but also very classy sorts of ways. He was actually pretty cool about this kind of stuff. Turned the Army of the Northwest into a decent fighting force. Kept In the War of 1812, he kept beating larger British forces over and over and over again in the field. He recaptured Detroit, which had been captured by the British. Uh, and then he also invaded Canada, where the British had strongholds and things. So you sit there and you go, wait, you... You took back everything the British took in our territory, and then you took it, the fight to them? It's like, yeah. It's like, hey, Henry Harrison, pretty cool. Um, yeah. If you visit Niagara on the lake, uh -huh. all right, in Canada, mm -hmm. all right, and it, um, it's known for, it has a bunch of theaters with plays and so on, but you walk around there downtown, and they say, yeah, this building was built after the War of 1812 when the Americans burned it down. And it was just every house after the Americans burned it down. After the Americans burned it down. Actually, that's germane. Uh, so uh, they don't like Henry William Henry Harrison up in Canada. We look at him and go, man, that guy rocked. Canada, not so much, not so much. When we think Canada today, we tend to think those nice guys in flannel up to the north. I mean, they're just nice. That's at this stage in history, they really hated us. And we really didn't like them very much either. This is back when Canada... Yes. The Canadians, they're, they're, they're congenitally nice. Well, no. they, they're still part of the British Empire. And we keep fighting with them over over boundaries, over things like this. So, yeah, he went and he's, he's burning stuff across the way. He fought the, the, uh, uh, the Battle of the Thames River. And this is the Thames in Canada, down, down here, not the Thames in England. But anyway, which not only just kicked the British. I mean, because, again, they were... They, they kept doing forays down here into into the American West and, and taking our stuff like Detroit. Um, so not only did he, he's like, nope, this, after this battle, there was none of that. They pretty much were stuck in, in Canada and not doing even all that well in Canada. But it's also the battle where Tecumseh died, because Tecumseh had been fighting uh, for the British, actually, as I say, for the British, technically he was just fighting against the Americans. He happened to be fighting next to the British. But it's like, I just really hate America. But that was the battle where, where William Henry Harrison took Tecumseh out, which, of course, made Harrison an immediate hero, even more so. He's already been a hero. He's a hero of uh, the uh, First Turtle War. He's a hero in the Northwest Indian Wars. And then here, he's not only kicking it to the British, but he's also, I mean, Tecumseh was a scary tale that you tell children to frighten them at night. You know, Tecumseh's going to come and get you. And so this is the battle where he finally took out Tecumseh. So, interesting, inter interesting stuff going on here in the, in the War of 1812. Also, this is the war where Andrew Jackson became a, a, a hero. But I'm going to talk about Andrew Jackson more in a, in a sec. But so these guys who had been heroes, war heroes before, get to be even bigger war heroes in 1812. Yeah. Um, does Tyler have anything to do with this? Because we talked earlier about the town called Tippecanoe, and it's Tippecanoe for Tyler, too. Well, Tyler comes out, he's, uh, he's, William Henry Henderson becomes known as Old Tippecanoe because of the Battle of Tippecanoe, and then Tyler was his running mate. So there's Tippecanoe, man. And Tyler's He's Tippecanoe, and Tyler's his running mate. Which, yeah. It's like, well, you got a nickname, and apparently a running mate. Anyway, go. <laughs> but, um, anyway. It is. It actually, it's incredibly catchy. That whole remind me that whole campaign was incredibly catchy. Uh, 
The war also had some classic patriotic history moments that are worth talking about. Um, a lot of people don't know much about the War of 1812, which makes me sad because it's really kind of interesting, but can't go into everything. But I will say, there was a time when they were bombarding Fort McHenry because um, the British troops wanted to invade Baltimore. They, 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 they were going to invade um, and, and burn down Washington. It's like Henry Harrison's, William Henry Harrison's doing up in Canada. But they, and they, what they really wanted was Baltimore. That was, that was an important port. And they, they, they wanted to get that. They have to get past Fort McHenry to do that. So they're just pounding it back into the Stone Age with, with all, their, all their big guns, all their rockets. They pound it all night long. But neither their big guns nor the rockets were particularly all that accurate. And so they, they weren't necessarily hit the fort every time. And, and even when they were, it's a pretty well-made fort. Actually, it's extremely well-made fort. So all night long they're pounding out. There's just smoke everywhere. You can't see anything. They keep <laughs> pounding near it without doing a whole lot of serious damage. Though, to be fair, the fort kept pounding back at the British ships. Kept missing them because they couldn't even see them because there's too much smoke. So everybody's shooting a lot, but just not hitting very much. Watching from the decks of one of the truce ships in, in the harbor was a lawyer who had, who was there to work at some other What? I thought he was in the fort. No, he was in, one of, he was in a truce <laughs> ship because he was actually doing some lawyery stuff. But when the sun came up, because like I said, all night long, it's all dark, and, and, it's, and it's all sooty and smoke from all the, all the firing, and he's like, I, we don't know. Is, when the sun comes up, am I going to just see a pile of rubble? Am I going to see the British invading the, the, the fort? I don't know. So the sun comes up, and he sees the American flag still waving there. And he's tremendously moved, because he's like, I really don't know if they're going to take Boston or, or Baltimore. I really don't know what's going on. So... Part of why you saw the flag is because they had made this oversized flag specifically for this reason. That's a man, and that's the flag that they were flying at the Fort McHenry. But they're like, oh, we want to make darn sure that everybody can see our flag, because we figured the British are going to try to take Fort McHenry, and we want everybody to see that the, the flag is going. So it's kind, of, it's kind of relevant when he's like, you know, I, I could see the flag there. Well, you know, people in St. Louis could still see the flag there. <laughs> So he wrote the poem, The Defense of Fort McHenry. Actually, that's the way you wrote the McHenry, but M apostrophe Henry. Defense of Fort McHenry, which became Star Spangled Banner. 1889, it became our national anthem once they set it to the music of a drinking song. So it's, I, I was actually listening to the drinking song this week, and I was just like, it's, it's just so bizarre. Because it is the same song, but it totally works as a drinking song, too. <laughs> Yeah, I, thought, I thought at that, when he was watching that, that a lot of people actually died holding up that flag, that the bombs were actually getting there. Somewhere. Right, because I, I, I had seen some kind of thing about this, about that war where people kept coming out and holding it, so a lot of people were dying from holding up that flag. I don't think an individual could hold up that flag. I mean, that flag is as big as a building. Yeah, that's yeah. why I'm like, okay, so what did I see then? I'm not sure. I'm not I sure. I know that there have been various battles in history where somebody running up and grabbing the flag was kind of a crucial point of the battle. That you just don't let the bat, the flag lay there. Somebody else picks it up, dies. Somebody else picks it up, dies. Somebody else picks it up. So there have been various times. There might have been something involving some of that. But that's that was a pretty huge flag. I mean, maybe a bunch of people kept making sure that the thing was fine. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. 
talked about the fact that the British had torched Washington, D.C., especially the White House, burned it to the ground. So um, that kind of struck the American psyche. It was supposed to demoralize Americans. Because I mean, think about it. If they said, yeah, because they're like, if, if France had invaded England and burned London, the Brits would be demoralized. You know, they'd be like, yeah, this is horrible. So they're like, oh, Americans will, will cave if we do this. Yeah, yeah, strangely, it's exactly the opposite, right? And the Americans are just like, no, you did Because uh, they're just totally galvanized against the British now. They're like, everybody, even the people that had been against the war, are like, nope, 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 kill all the British now. They burned the White House. Uh, it also created even more enmity between America and Canada. Because Canada all sat there and said, yay! They made official proclamations. A lot of Canadian pastors were giving sermons, and, and there's one uh, Canadian bishop that even wrote to the, to the American government and said, this is God's judgment. You burned parts of Canada. This is what you did 30 years ago in the, in the Revolutionary War. This is what Harrison's been doing up there. No, in your face, America, which we didn't appreciate. So it's, like, it's, it's one thing to burn somebody's capital to the ground. It's another thing for a nearby country to go, hey, nah, 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 we hate you. It's like, Canada's still a little smug about this. Oh, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. It's like, yeah, we burned your capital. It's like, yeah, we still burned. Um, contrary to popular myth, no, Dolly Madison did not personally cut down uh, the portrait of George Washington and other portraits and save them. She, she didn't have time. The British were literally, I mean, by the time she found out about this, the British were just a couple miles away, so she gathered all of her stuff, but she did have her servants do it. She's like, okay, you absolutely have to go downstairs and you have to save I mean, famous portrait of, of George Washington and any other artwork, anything else that you can get, save. So technically she is, she, she, she made sure that they got saved, but there's this whole thing about Dolly Madison went down with a knife and cut the, cut the thing out of its frame, rolled it up and took it with her. No, but sort of. She gave the order. She gave the order. So give her some credit, but change your mental picture. Anyway. Is that why she got a cupcake named after her? Actually, kind of. I mean, she became this famous American first lady. Nobody else could remember anybody else till Eleanor Roosevelt. So, I mean, or maybe Mary Todd Lincoln. Um, she was, she had a hard life. Anyway, okay, but Mary Todd Lincoln was really cool because um, after they rebuilt the, water, the, the White House and, and started restocking things, when, when the Lincolns came into the White House, they didn't even have like match sets of dishes and silverware and stuff. She's like, we're, we're we're bringing foreign dignitaries who are used to being at the Palace of Versailles into the White House and giving them mis mismatched silverware and mismatched. No, this is ridiculous. We are not coming off right with the rest of the world. And so she's like, we will have decent silverware. We'll have decent china. We'll have decent artwork. This will be a head of state house. So it was Mary Todd Lincoln that actually made us have some cred all in the world. So, I know she was like, no, but... Anyway, supposedly this is an event that Yamamoto pointed back to when he was torqued off with the Japanese high command. He's like, wait, my whole plan was we would declare war and immediately bomb Pearl Harbor. It would be demoralizing. But because you guys screwed up, we bombed Pearl Harbor and then declared war? Did you guys learn nothing from the War of 1812? You're just like, 
you if you if you poke America in the eye, they're not going to get demoralized. They're going to get really upset. You just you just made them never ever 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 going to give up. You realize that, right? They're never going to back down. And, and apparently, this supposedly this is one of the events he pointed to in American history, saying, "You guys have to learn." He also pointed to the Alamo, going, "Really, really, you don't get it." Just because you beat them, yeah. Like, just because you beat them in a thing, doesn't mean you're going to win the war. So, <sighs> poor Yamamoto. I actually like him. Oh, never. Incidentally, they're all ready. The British have, have, have burned the White House. They've burned the Capitol building. They're going to burn the whole capital city to the ground, and then they're going to occupy the area. They're like, we're going to make your former former capital our base of operations, so that we can take Baltimore. Ha, 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 right? But a hurricane sweeps in and puts out all the fires. The judgment of God. <laughs> and sinks most of the British ships in the harbor. And then the next day, a tornado sweeps through town, forcing the British to evacuate. So you laugh. But yes, everybody started calling it the storm that saved Washington and said, yeah. This is God's judgment against you. You don't get to do that. So all the time that the Canadians go, yeah, burn Washington. Americans go, yeah, God's on our side. <laughs> no, he isn't. Dude, hurricane, <laughs> tornado, God fought for us today. Oh, my goodness. So it actually is kind, of, kind of a big deal. Oh, well. But this isn't just a class on war, this is a class on ripple effects of some of that stuff, and one of the most important ripple effects of the War of 1812 was on churches, and, and how did churches respond to this? The Methodist Episcopal churches, especially the ones in the South, like in, in Virginia and, and Southern ones, tended to be very removed from the causes of the war. They're like, we don't, we don't do a lot of, we don't, we don't do the shipping, like it's up in New England that most of your guys are getting impressed. Um, we're not on the Indian frontiers. So we're sitting here in the Carolinas and Virginia, and we're like, just don't see a reason for the war. Um, and it, so they're just kind of indifferent. Other ones, especially in New England, found themselves actually standing against the war. You would think that they, they might go, well, I totally see the investments, and I see why we need to do this. But they saw these British missionaries, like William Carey in India and Robert Morrison in China, and they're like, God is moving through the English to bring the gospel to the world. So there was one New England uh, pastor named Benjamin Bell who preached to his congregation and he said, to make war on England was to fight against God. You are fighting the wrong people. This is just plain wrong. And then other churches, especially over there on the, on the western frontier, because remember Illinois, Indiana, that's the far west, right? Technically, we also own this, but nobody's there. You know, nobody's out there. This is just wasteland. So, in the rugged frontier of Illinois and, and Indiana, <laughs> out far out far in the west where there's nothing but woods, those churches all sat there and said, oh, yeah, the war rocks. This is exactly what we need to do. Why would they be supportive of the war? Because all the Indians were killing them. Yeah! They're like, dude, Tecumseh, the British are arming the Native Americans, like, next door to us. They keep killing. They keep killing all of us with British ammunition and British weapons. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we need to fight Britain. I think so. They saw it. It's like not only do we do we have to, but it's necessary for us to survive. If we don't fight Britain, we're toast. Britain keeps making incursions down in here. They take 
Detroit, they take all these different things. It's like pretty soon this whole area is just going to be red again. And, you know, red because it's British and red with blood. No, this is, we have to fight. But also not only because they need to survive, but because they need to grow. A lot of Western churches bought into this idea of what became known as manifest destiny. That the, the America has this manifest destiny to spread uh, the gospel and to spread American culture across the continent. Because the only thing west of us are those crazy Catholics and, and Indians out here on the, on the West Coast. Well, and then and then the Russians over here, but they're kind of doing their own thing. They're way up north. Who knows what they do? Uh, but so they're like, you know, we we need to move west. We need to to keep moving westward. And so ultimately, that's part of why we need to fight the British, is to keep expanding this way, fighting the British and fighting their Native American allies. Now, this isn't just a new thing, because John Winthrop, if you remember, preached that sort of thing. And Thomas Jefferson made the Louisiana Purchase specifically to move us that direction. Uh, James Monroe was making doctrines to specifically move us in that direction. This is just an ongoing, it has been an ongoing American thing for the last 200 years. Anyway, so, ironically, you have some Christian churches who are opposing the war because they think that the war will hamper missionary efforts. And you have some churches who support the war because they think the war will help missionary efforts. So which one's right? And, and, and it's interesting that primarily the division between these churches as to who's deciding whether this is good for missions or bad for missions is primarily geographical. Do you live in the south? Do you live in the northeast? Do you live in the west? Then you're probably going to have a different view of missions. Which one's right? Well, obviously Uh, that, could, that could just be pro-America, not anti-Britain. Well, actually, that's, and again, that's what several of them are pointing to, saying, hey, you know, God is clearly on the side of the right, and he's on the side of us, because on account of we're American. Now, we laugh at that, and there are still people that automatically say that today, because we live in America, God must be on our side, because we're a Christian nation. I don't know that that follows, but... Uh, but you can see the seeds of this even even back with Winthrop, but but even specifically here where they're like, God is showing that he's on our side. He's showing that he is pro-America. So, or as one pastor said, it's a hurricane may happen. You know, it's, you know, but it was an oddly timed and helpful hurricane, yeah, so. Oh, I think John's going to do missions in uh, there you go. But it is interesting. I mean, we don't want to do anything to, to, to try to hamper things. We, we want to grease the wheels of some of those things. We want to facilitate that. But in the grand scheme of things, God's going to do what God's going to do. If you remember that whole Robert Morrison, you go, what? One guy in China where everybody in China hated him, his own missions agency stopped returning his letters. He's one guy out there. Nobody likes him and nobody's helping him until God brought who to help him? The British East India Company? The British East India Company? Are they good guys in that story? Yeah, so I'm pretty sure God's going to do missions wherever God wants to do missions. Even if he has to use Pharaoh or Gasp, the British East India Company. <laughs> anyway, it also had an effect on the Native American tribes in, in America. Tenskwatawa's uh, confederation had stirred up a whole lot of hatred among different tribes, including the Bodwanami, the Potawatomi, in Illinois, you know, Potawatomi, Potawatomi, uh, which is led by a guy named Maine Polk, 
which is supposedly a corrupt version of French meaning crippled hand. Um, because he, in his left hand, he had no fingers on his left hand. And it was just born. Anyway, but he claimed to be a spiritual leader, like Densquakdawa. And he's like, I, I, he has frequent visions that we need to destroy all the white people. He also had frequent visions that he needs to sleep with as many women as is physically possible, including uh, the wives of other members of his tribe. But that's it. Over the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot of um, spiritual revivals where people say, I'm a leader. God has spoken to me, and I am speaking truth, and God wants this and this, and he wants me to sleep with your 13-year-old daughter. You know, there's a lot of that going around. It's like, the class, like the classic thing with Joseph Smith, where he, 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 found, he found out that uh, he's supposed to have multiple wives only after being caught in bed with a child. So yeah, it's kind of fun. Anyway, but they began raiding white settlements uh, and, and other tribes' settlements, like the Osage. Um, so even other Bodwanami tribes, like the like the Peoria, led by uh, Chief Gomo, came to, to the, the Americans and said, you know, we're, we're, we'll pledge neutrality, sometimes even pledge loyalty, if you'll help us against Maine Polk. So sometimes when we talk about the Indian Wars, we, we think, oh, it's all those mean white people against all those nice Indians. And you, well, it's, it's more complicated than that. At least at this stage, with Tenskwatawa and Maine Polk, it's, no, it's those mean... Indians against the relatively nice white guys over there at, at that moment. It won't last. Then it'll flip the other side. But still. Uh, and even here, it's like half the Indians in the area are going, um, we don't like them. Could you help us? People are complicated. Yes, they are. All people. All people. August 1812. Maine Polk's uh, group attacked Fort Dearborn in modern-day Chicago. And they used British ammunition powder, killed, captured... Almost 100 people living there, including uh, 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 several women and all the children, which is why if you look at most paintings of the Fort Dearborn Massacre, they will have the soldiers fighting Indians, but they will almost invariably have pictures of women and children there, too, because that was one of the nasty things that they did was, was mistreating the women and children. So that was kind of a... That was kind of a... An intense moment. If people have studied anything about the, the Indian Wars or the Peoria War, as, as part of this was called, um, the Fort Dearborn Massacre. In fact, living in Chicago, we I just heard about the Fort Dearborn Massacre various times because it was kind of seminal. In retaliation, the U.S. Army ordered all the Bodwanami encampments along the Illinois River to be burned to the ground. Unfortunately, including like neutral ones like the Peoria. You because know, they didn't know. I mean, the higher-ups, the higher muckety-mucks go, okay, Gomo's cool. But when you're when you're saying the Bodwanami are causing problems, burn their villages to the ground, by the time that trickles down to the actual soldiers, they're like, okay, burn all the Bodwanami camps. So, again, all this ripples into other fighting, into other fighting. Though, I will give credit where credit's due. The, the soldiers were, were given instructions to evacuate the camps first. Like, don't kill anybody, just burn the, burn the villages. If you remember when Harrison burned Prophetstown to the ground last week, he made the point, he's like, this isn't to kill anybody, this is to disperse them. This is to say, you don't get, apparently if I let you congregate in large numbers, there's going to be fighting. So, I'm not trying to kill you. These guys even gave uh, food and canoes to the families, saying, go elsewhere. We're, we're forcibly relocating you. I don't care where you go, but you don't get to be here anymore. So, I mean, I'm not saying that it's, it's okay for them to have done, 
But I, I don't want you to think this is like Wounded Knee where they're just going and killing women and children in retaliation. You go, no, you killed women and children. So in retaliation, we give you food and canoes and say, I'm sorry, you're going to have to leave now. Again, it's, it's layers of complication. But you can see why all this kind of stuff keeps building on both sides of these equations. keeps building this resentment, more and more resentment from whites towards Indians, more and more resentment from Indians towards whites. So, um, in addition to all that, uh, and, and fighting Tecumseh and Tenskwakua and the Bodwanami, there's also the Creek tribe, because if you remember, Tecumseh had stirred up the Creek last week. That's about the only tribe that they got that they got that would be willing to fight, launching the Creek War. So there's the Peoria War and the Creek War, and all that's going on during the War of 1812. We're just fighting everybody all over the place. Um, but that started off essentially as a civil war within the Creek. A lot of Creek tribes have learned to coexist with the white settlers, which torqued off a lot of the other Creek tribes. So you got these Christian Creek tribes against uh, the, the, those who were following Tenskwetla's revival and said, oh, we want to kill every, every European and everybody who's doing anything, even European. And so they look at the other Creek tribes and they say, you pretty much have gone not native. You've gone white because now you're, yeah, you're, you're race traitors. And so we'll kill all of those guys. And so these militant Creek were known as the Red Sticks, because that in Creek culture you had white sticks symbolizing peace and red sticks symbolizing war. So they called themselves the Red Sticks, which is why, if you study this period in history, it can, it's called the Creek War or the Red Stick War. Two different names for I'm sure this is not connected at all, but I know it's not connected at all. But <laughs> the Go for it. Interesting, I hadn't put that together. I'm sure there's a book in there somewhere. Anyway! Okay, let's move on to Andrew Jackson, though. Andrew Jackson had been a courier, a teenage courier in the Revolutionary War. He had been captured and horribly mistreated by the British. He's a 13-year-old kid, and, and while he's been captured, not, they, they tortured him. And at one point, a British officer demanded that he clean his boots, and Jackson refused, so they slashed him up. So for the rest of his life, he had deep scars on his face and on his hands from the British. He really didn't like the British. Anyway, he was sent to subdue the Red Sticks, and he won the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, which is kind of a huge deal. More than 800 Creek were killed, 200 more were captured, and Jackson lost 50, um, and, and with another 154 wounded. But you just go, that's kind of an important route. Um, and the Red Stick War is basically over with one huge decisive battle. I mean, there were other things they did, but this one battle pretty much finished it. There was a chief, Chief uh, Menawa of the, of the Creek, that escaped into Florida and started kind of riling up the Seminole tribes there. Because there's going to be a Seminole War here soon. So every time you go around, it's like there's more and more wars all over the place. Jackson confiscates all the Creek lands and gives it to the nearby Cherokee. Because they're like, the Cherokee are cool. They're working with everybody. All the Creek lands, it's now Cherokee lands. Including, if you remember, not all the Creek were Red Sticks. And there were some Creek that were not Red Sticks. Oh, well, your land is now Cherokee. Because you, you can sit there and go, wow, Jackson's actually pro-Cherokee. Sure. You can also look at it and go, well. Yeah. Okay, again, as well as, there's a lot that goes into Jackson's presidency is very complicated with that sort of thing. But 20 years from now, by the time he, he, 
he uh, signs the Indian Removal Act, he spent a lifetime fighting against Indians. Every time that, that, that whites and Indians tried to coexist in an area, there was fighting. So you can understand where he's like, I don't know what to do other than remove them. And technically the worst parts of the Trail of Tears was in Van Buren's administration, not Jackson's. So I'm not alleviating any guilt. I'm just saying, again, like, like it's, it's complicated. Um, in fact, little Jackson note, uh, a little boy, a little Creek boy named Linkoya was orphaned during the Creek War. And Creek culture says if he's orphaned, he's dead to us. If he's a little kid, nobody wants him. So nobody, none of the, of the moms were going were gonna to feed him. They just left him out there to die because his family's dead, so he should die. That's the way that works. Um, Jackson found out about it and took Linkoya into his own home and adopted him and raised him as his own son. Tried to send him to West Point, but West Point says, we're not taking an Indian. So, it's interesting. Depending on which Jacksonian stories you pick, he's an, he's an Indian hater. He hates the Indians. Absolutely categorically hates the Indians. You go, really? Raised one as his own son and was absolutely disgusted with, with West Point for being so racist. Which stories do you want to go with? Complicated. Exactly. 1814, Treaty of Ghent uh, ends the war. Long story short, Napoleon has abdicated in France. Okay, I go back. Napoleon's abdicated in France. He'd been doing really, really well against the coalitions. Then he had this brilliant idea of invading Russia from Poland. Don't invade Russia! But he's smart because he's like, a timed it well will be out by the time the Russian winter kicks in. Well, we can beat him. We can totally beat him in the field. No, trust me, guys. This is a good plan. But the Russians said, wait, we're really crazy big, and it's really crazy cold in the winter. Those are our two best things. He's right. He will beat us in the field. So we're just going to keep retreating. He keeps wanting to fight, and they just keep going. So he keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper into Russia until the winter hits. And all of a sudden, he's like, Nuts! Nuts! This is exactly what I didn't want to do! He's stuck in the middle of Russia in the middle of winter. Loses 380,000 of his 410,000 troops of the West, or the East. It's just huge. There's no way to overestimate how horrible this is for him. Because, I mean, he's, he's taken over all of Europe. And then he's, it's over. Because he made one more judgment call and decided to go there. And he's forced to retreat back to France. The coalition threw everything at him. He only had about 70,000 troops left total. And he was forced to abdicate, and he went into exile here in the little island of Elba off Tuscany. And, and it's over. There's no more Napoleon. Anyway, so Napoleon's gone. And uh, what happened to Waterloo? No, no, he's, he's in Elba now. There's no. What Waterloo? Um, <laughs> he's done. Anyway, um, so England has no real re yes spoilers. He's not going to stay on Elba. Um, not this time. Not this time. England has no real reason to fight America anymore. They're like, well, we don't need to impress troops to join the British Navy to fight France. We don't need to have unfair trade laws to stick it to France. Um, I guess we're done. That's that's kind of the way it ended. They just feel like it's just not cost effective for us to keep fighting you guys. So for a second time, England left America going, I think it's just easier for us to stop fighting. They refused to admit that they lost. This is more like Vietnam. They're like, well, we didn't win. It's not like we lost. Nobody lost.
lost here. We just we're just walking away. Which is why it's so important that the Treaty of Ghent ended the war, but it didn't end the fighting. There was a really important battle that made a huge difference in history, though it made no difference in the war whatsoever. The treaty was signed December 24th, 1814. But news only travels as fast as the fastest ship, right? And it wasn't ratified by Congress until February of 1815. In January of 1815, the British down in Louisiana were continuing their invasion plans. Because they didn't know. They're like, we might as well keep going until we hear that the war is gone. They tried to invade from Canada. That didn't work. Thank you, Henry Harris. Blame Henry Harris. So they're going to invade Louisiana. In January, they ran into Andrew Jackson, who's there in Canada defending, or in, in, in Louisiana defending New Orleans, though the city had no decent defenses. He got there and they're like, okay, defend it. He's like, you guys got nothing. I got no fleet. You got no, no decent fortifications. So he's scrambling to try to fortify the place, and he ends up making an ally of, talk about strange bedfellows, a pirate named Jean Lafitte. Because all of Lafitte's ships had been commandeered by the American Navy. They'd been captured, and Lafitte goes, tell you what, rather than throw us all in prison, we'll man those ships for you and help defend New Orleans. Because... They should make a movie about that. <laughs> Toughest tough guy line ever is from the movie The Buccaneer with, with Andrew Jackson and Jean Lafitte. Charlton Heston, Gil Brenner, go check it out. Anyway. What's the line? Um, Jean Lafitte comes into uh, Andrew Jackson's office, puts a, a, a gun to his head, and Charlton Heston looks at him and goes, you could put a bullet in my brain and I'd still live long enough to kill you. <laughs> 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 Which, if you know anything about Andrew Jackson, you go, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Toughest tough guy line. <laughs> and because it's coming from Charlton Aston, out of the mouth of Andrew Jackson, you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, battle turns out to be an absolute rout. The British lose 2,600 men, including 500 guys who had pretended to be dead until after the battle, and jumped up and apologized and said, could you please just arrest us? <laughs> 2,600 men... The Americans lost 13. Oh my goodness, wow. So, wow. do you understand why there became so many songs about the British, man, we made them run like jackrabbits. We just kicked their booties. Andrew Jackson, overnight sensation. Because it's like back-to-back -back wins. He's like, wait, you, you did this massive win over here, and then you did this massive win over here? We love you. Is there any, do you see why William Henry Harrison and Andrew Jackson both got to become presidents later? Based on this stuff? Yeah. Even more importantly, though, the British, who had left going, well, we haven't lost. I mean, it's not like they're a real army. But it's just not cost-effective. Hear about the Battle of New Orleans. It's like, smeared you over the pavement. It's like, this is why there isn't a third English-American battle at war. There's two of them, but not three of them. Why? Andrew Jackson and the Battle of New Orleans kind of important for history, even though it didn't have anything to do with the war. Tremendous stuff to do with history. Same year, the Baptists held their triennial convention, their very first triennial convention. William Carey's in India, right? He's doing all sorts of great stuff, this great Baptist missionary, having this profound effect, even influencing other denominations. For instance, 
the extremely reformed, paedobaptist, congregationalists in New England sent the, the Judsons from America to India to serve with Carrie. They're like, we're, we're going to send our own missionaries. Carrie's doing an awesome job in India. Go learn from Carrie. No, he's a Baptist. Not long after they started working with Carrie, they said, you know what, I think we're Baptists too. He convinced them, they did Bible studies, and he convinced them, oh, we're going to become believers Baptists like him. Strangely, the congregations did not like that, right? Like, wait a minute, we, we scrounged up a bunch of money to send you over to India, and you just went Baptist on us. You can't do that. So they yanked their funding. They're like, that's it. You're, we're not supporting you anymore if you're not going to be part of You're not going to support our theology, we're not going to support your ministry. So, Carrie's like, all right, you guys are good. I've got to find some way to get you funded. If your people aren't going to fund you, we've got to find Baptists to fund you. So Carrie pushes for all the American churches to come together. Pardon me? Sorry. Yeah. So, to hold this triennial, meaning every three years, General Missionary Convention of the Baptist Denomination of the United States of America for Foreign Missions. And you might go, yeah, whatever. But this is the first time that the Baptist churches in America all came together to talk about a common goal. This is the first time that they had a sense that they're all one group, which is kind of important. You know, it's not just a bunch of smattering of Baptist churches here and there. It's like, no, we're all coming together and we're sending out missionaries. And that's all because of, of Kerry and, and India and all that. So it's the first time they come together, interact as a community, and they immediately began fighting. Because that's what Christians do if you stick them in a room together, because they're like, yeah, yes, you don't do this quite right, so I hate you. Um, the southern churches are... Uh, made uh, support of slavery an issue. They're like, well, of course, slavery is cool. It's actually helpful. Boy, isn't it rotten that those English have, have uh, made uh, slavery illegal. And everybody else is like, actually, we kind of like that. So immediately, the southern churches um, start separating themselves from the other ones. The northeastern churches say, actually, we're big fans of William Wilberforce. We think that's awesome that slavery is now illegal in England. And we really oppose all those wars against England and against the Indians. Which makes all the Western churches say, actually, we couldn't care less about slavery, but, you know, the war is crucial. We, we absolutely have to be fighting. So again, even though they have a common theology, well, sort of a common theology, I should go back, um, there were some Baptists who were very supportive of missionaries, and they started calling themselves missionary Baptists. And there are other Baptists who said, actually, we're against the whole idea of having a mission-sending agency or denominational hierarchy. That's unbiblical. We want to get back to the way that the, the, the church truly was in the first century, and so they're called primitive Baptists. So if you've ever seen signs for missionary Baptist churches or primitive Baptist churches, now I don't know why. But even though they had shared a common theology, they couldn't get past regional politics. They couldn't see past the fact that there are Western churches, and Southern churches, and Northeastern churches. Years later, a guy named Jacques Ellul uh, writes several books, but he wrote a book called The Subversion of Christianity, where he, he observed that churches tended to mimic their cultural surroundings. Churches tended to do what their, their culture did. But the scariest part is, they don't see it. They become religions of or people who share a common ideology, but they're no longer a living, vibrant church. And 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 he's like, and the scariest thing, like I said, is they don't realize it. You have priests running around in fatigues in Central America with the revolutionaries saying, Jesus said that we should be free. You know, you do realize you're mimicking 
the revolutionaries to decide what Jesus said. I'm not saying that you're necessarily wrong in what you're saying, but it's coming from building it off of the culture. In the 1980s, as we get more of a corporate culture, mega churches start popping up and starts reflecting very much the, the consumerist mindset of the 1980s. You look at the 70s and you go, oh, but we, it was like that in the 70s, we had this Jesus people movement. You go, really? About the same time that you had the hippies? In the 1950s, you had this, you know, the church was, was good. It was, it, was, it was clean and everybody dressed nicely and nobody had these problems that people have today. Yes, they did. They just refused to talk about it. Kind of like on, on I Love Lucy where she wasn't allowed to say that she's pregnant. She had to say she had a bun in the oven because you know, we we're not allowed to talk about anything. And they have to sleep in separate beds because, I mean, married people don't sleep together. That would be risque. You know, churches keep mirroring their cultures and assuming that that mirroring is scriptural. There's a danger in that. I'm not even saying that some of the conclusions are wrong. It's just, where are you starting when you're arriving at those conclusions? Anyway, 1815. Peter the Aleut was murdered, martyred, killed. Uh, according to Orthodox history, Aleut? Thank you. Well, because it's the illusions. I've never heard. Thank you very much. I've never heard it pronounced. Okay, Orthodox history. According to Orthodox history, a group of Russian seal and otter hunters are hunting illegally in Spanish, Spanish California. Because remember, there's that white section just above that. So the, the Russians are around there, but they're a little farther south than they're supposed to. So they're taken to the mission at Mission Dolores in San Francisco for questioning because they're off those waters, the priests attempted to get the Aleuts to uh, convert to Catholicism. Um, but they refused, saying, well, we're already Christians. We're Russian Orthodox. So, no, actually. So the priests sent to one young Aleut named Peter, actually, that his birth name was, I think it's Kumgaknak. Again, I could, I've never heard it pronounced. So, um, But he took the name Peter on his conversion to Russian Orthodoxy. And they began to torture him until he would accept... Uh, Roman Catholicism and renounced his, his orthodoxy. They chopped off his fingers bit by bit by bit, one by one, and then they chopped off his hand. It's really nasty until they finally disemboweled him. And this was the priest. This is the priest. And, and, but he refused to, to recant. So then they started going to the next guys, who, had to, who they forced to watch all this. But luckily the magistrate said, okay, you know, just release everybody. We don't, have, it's not, we don't have enough evidence on him. Just go. So they didn't get to torture anybody else. Luckily... And that's nasty. Now, according to Catholic history, none of that happened. That's all Russian Orthodox lies. Never happened. At least not like that. Okay, yes. There were a group of Russian seal hunters and Aleuts who had been arrested and taken to San Francisco. Yes, we admit that freely. And yes, there might have been torture involved. Or not. But there might have been torture involved. But if there was, if there had been torture, it had nothing to do with forcing Peter's conversion uh, from Orthodoxy to Catholicism. We just thought he was just a pagan. Dude, we didn't know he was he was Russian Orthodox. We just thought we were torturing a pagan into Christ. So, understand the context. Or maybe it was just a bunch of soldiers having some fun. Because that's, that's what they did to the Indians. I mean, that's kind of fun. If you remember, we've had, we've already talked about in this area, we've had priests who regularly beat and whip the, the Native Americans. So, if, if they do that, what, do you, what are the soldiers doing? But it has nothing to do with we don't think Russian Orthodoxy works. Okay, 
the Russian Orthodox Church go, on you. Yes, it totally happened. And this is just, they, he's still venerated as a martyr, and he's still an example of why Rome is evil. So it depends on whose version of history you want. Is it the Russian Orthodox version that I just told you, or is it the Catholics going, no, 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 we didn't know this Christian. We would have never tortured him horribly if we'd known that. If we'd known that. Well, yeah, if we thought he was a pagan, then if you can torture him so he becomes Christian, dude, it just makes sense. We're not that far removed from the, from the Inquisition, so. It's also the same year that the second Barbary War goes on. Because the pirates are still being snarky out on the oceans and, and, and taking out the occasional ship, taking out the occasional support. I know, it's a whole economy is built on this. But after the War of 1812, the U.S. Navy is, like, kicking butt now. The U.S. Navy is doing great. We're extremely potent and powerful. And we're like, you know what? Uh, why don't we just end this? I mean, we created the idea of the Marines to defend our, 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 our ships, but uh, how about we just send the Navy there? So they send Commodore Stephen Decatur to Algiers, and he takes out the whole Algerian pirate fleet. Because it's like, no, we're capturing all your ships. And then... Um, and the British actually, ironically, the British actually help. So we're fighting, I mean, like 30 seconds ago, we were fighting against each other. Now they're fighting with each other. Um, you ever read any of the Hornblower books or watch the movies? There's a guy named Edward Pellew, uh, who was actually a historical character, and he was the head of the British fleet down there doing some good. But anyway, they turned, the, the Algerians turned over more than 1,000 European prisoners that they'd had, uh, that they'd been enslaving, and they paid $10,000 in reparations, which nowadays would be like $150,000. Reparation saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. Signed a bunch of trees and never had any problems again. Um, this is also the same year that Mount Tambora erupted in Indonesia. And again, most people when you say that, they just glaze over them. Okay, whatever. Hopefully by now, hopefully by now, when I say big stinking eruption, you guys hear Krakatoa, you hear Mount Laki, and you go, wait a minute. I don't care if it was a big explosion over there in Indonesia. Are there ripple effects to this? Pardon me? Plague. Plague, what have you. All sorts of things. Krakatoa explodes and you get you get the plague. Mount Laki erupts and you get the Revolutionary War. Right? Because we talked about this in the French Revolution. Sumatra, 1,600 miles away, it sounded like ships shooting their big guns offshore. 1,600 miles away, it sounded loud to them. The ash cloud itself, the periclastic cloud, um, spread as far as Java 1,200 miles away. Almost, it blew the, the top 4,000 feet off of the mountain through almost 10 cubic miles of, 10 cubic miles of debris into the atmosphere. It's going to affect things. So, between the eruption and subsequent tsunamis that came from all that, the immediate death toll was like, it's calculated as like 4,600 people. But, there are ripple effects. Tonnage of debris, all the stuff up in the atmosphere, all the sulfur dioxide caused global climate shift. The northeastern United States covered with perpetual fog. Sunsets around the world were bizarre for two years, which is why you get so many famous sunset paintings in 1815-1816. Because they had the most amazing ochre sunsets and stuff. Um, and the most important effect was that 1816 became known as the year without a summer. 
Snow fell in Virginia in July. The ground was still frozen in New England in August. Um, crops failed around the world. Disease, starvation, rampant everywhere. Ripple effect death toll somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 million people died in the next year, year and a half as a result of all of this, including 100,000 of those in Ireland alone because they, all the crops failed. Everything failed. Rampant starvation, then typhus came in a after that. It's like, you just pretty much wiped out most of Ireland here. It's just unimaginably horrible. Food riots in England and France. Switzerland declared a national emergency. Order began to break down in France. Well, you know, there had been when Napoleon was around. He brought order. It had been chaotic and crazy. But then Napoleon took over, and everything worked like clockwork. <laughs> so, yeah, this is part of why the French people are like, totally, this is the guy we want. We want Napoleon back. He's the only guy that brought order. And strangely enough, he did. And the rest of Europe is sitting there going, we're just trying not to die over here. So Napoleon comes in and takes power. And by the time he does, everybody else in Europe is like, whoa, man, scramble. You know, we had to do something about this. For 100 days, he ruled France again. So there's a whole thing. In fact, they even refer to it like in couple of the 100 days. You know, when Napoleon was back and things were working and, and it's all going to be good again until he ran into Wellington and the coalition forces at Waterloo. And arguably, Wellington wasn't necessarily a better commander than Napoleon. He wasn't bad. But he'd lived in Waterloo. He, he knew every nook and cranny of that. He knew the ground well. And he's like, well, this is the ground we're catching Napoleon in. So Wellington, who's good, and his forces met Napoleon, who's better, in ground that Napoleon was unfamiliar with, Wellington was familiar with. And it was a really foggy day, so he couldn't use his, his artillery, and half of his forces got waylaid in another place, and so it was just everything went wrong for Napoleon that day. So those paintings are like quintessentially English. Aren't they? Quintessentially French. Aren't they? I love it. <laughs> totally. What are you saying? How is putting order in trying to help people not die and everything from all the climate stuff going to war helping them? Uh, helping France? Or, yeah. Oh, because Napoleon wanted to conquer Europe again. He's like, not too awful long, but we owned all of this. We can get it back. In fact, with all the chaos out there, we can totally get it back. I mean, nobody, nobody can put an army in the field. They're all starving. This is a time where, this is a time where we get as many gains as is possible. And it wasn't. Due to the deaths, due to so many different things going on, but due to the deaths of horses, so many horses, pack animals, an inventor named Carl Dreis began working on horseless means of travel, including the velocipede, which is the granddaddy of the bicycle. And, <laughs> and other horseless things. So you can sit there and go, the bicycle, the, the car, the all the, all the stuff is all a direct result of this eruption of a volcano in Mount Tungori. Um, due to so many crops failing in the eastern, well-populated United States, because this, this is where all the farmland is. Pennsylvania, that's the breadbasket, right? No, not anymore. It's everything on the coast is toast. All the crops are dead. The coast is toast. So what do you do? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to move? Your farm is, is dead. All your livestock is dead. Where, where do you move? So everybody moves, everybody moves west. And so the Midwest becomes the American heartland and the breadbasket. It hadn't been. Up to this point, it was just all woods and rugged frontier. 
But thanks to a volcano erupting in Indonesia, all of a sudden the Midwest becomes the farming capital of the United States. And the East is coal country. So he's like, but this, this was farmland. No, not anymore. Almost overnight, everything's changed. What was happening over in Indonesia? And, I mean, I didn't know. Uh, it's chaos and mass death. I mean, it's, it's, it, China was frozen over. I mean, there's all sorts of different places. Also a big attitudinal shift in, in Europe. Um, there had been this romantic school of writing and art and things like that and, and began to shift to a more neo-Gothic thing because it's really cold and dreary and bad. Poet Percy Bysshe Shelley and his sort of wife, Mary, they're not actually married, but she called herself his wife, decided to summer in Geneva with his friend Lord Byron and Byron's friend Dr. Paul Dory. And they're going to just go chill and have some fun. But it's so bad. The weather is so bad. It's so cold and dreary and rainy in 1816. They spent most of their time indoors, just chatting about stuff. One weekend was so particularly nasty that they decided to hold a contest to see who could write the scariest story over the weekend. <laughs> Byron wrote a very spooky story that Polidori then converted into the book The Vampire about Lord Riven, uh, which is the first modern vampire story and arguably created the whole gothic genre that we think of. That whole vampire, spooky castle, dark, that's all this book that started there. While Mary had horrible, horrible nightmares that she turned into the basis of her later book, which had a ton of help from Percy. Percy worked on it a lot. It's hard to know how much of it was Mary, how much of it was Percy. But she had totally the idea. And what book is this? Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Because it's this connection of not only um, scary, uh, not only scary nightmare based in part on dreary weather based on the eruption of a volcano in Indonesia, but also if you remember this whole thing about electricity is still a very scary thing. It's still relatively new. It's only been about 40 years that they felt like they've understood electricity, and it's this dynamic force that's freaking everybody out. 1816. Shaka Zulu killed his brother, taking control of the Zulu, changes everything about how the Zulu do things, and they take over, take over large, they invade and take over large parts of South Africa. How would you summarize what's going on at this point in history? I mean, there's a gazillion things going on, but what would you say, especially from Christian history? We only were able to touch on that a little bit this time, but you, you tell me, what, how would you describe what it would be like to be a Christian, especially in the Americas right now? Yeah, right there. Right, right there. 200 years ago. It is, yeah. That's why I thought I'd end at 1816. Well, the same. A lot of the stuff you were saying, we are the same. We have our country being invaded now, and we have people that are for it, against it, for different reasons, just like the regional churches. We have people who... We have people who, because of their ideologies, are quite certain that um, to be a good Christian is to stand against Islam, and thus any Islamic refugees that would, that would be a huge influx of Islam. We have people who are quite certain, because of their ideologies, that the Bible would say, any refugee, anybody who's fleeing tyranny, you need to, to love them well. These aren't the people causing the problems, these are people fleeing the problems. This is what a wonderful opportunity, the mission field is coming to your doorstep. So which is right? I mean, it, there, to stop and say, dueling ideologies where everybody is quite certain 
They're the ones being biblical. They're the ones being godly. Now, are there right answers? Yes. <laughs> I think there's, there's definitely wrong answers and all that. My point in this is to say, there's a lot of this where you say, all of this chaos, all this fighting, has led to a lot of division. A lot of people saying, we don't like you, we don't like you, we don't like you. We're only a couple years away from the Southern Baptist going, you know what? We're just going to be our own Southern Baptist denomination because of slavery. And nobody else seems to agree with us. So the Southern Baptists are created because they want to support slavery. And call yourselves Southern Baptists. I mean, it's, it's like, really? You are, you are so, so indelibly implanted on even the name of your denomination. We're basing this on our geography and our sociopolitical stance in this geography not so much on scripture. So we need to stop and go, wait a minute, why do we believe what we believe? Are, are, are we being biblical? Are we being emotive? Are we being political? What exactly is the basis of it? Because everybody says they're being biblical. You can't just go, well, I know I'm biblical. Walk away. You just go, be Berean. Go back and double check and go, am I being biblical? Is that where this is coming from? Alright, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I, I thank you for showing us that there are times in history where we felt besieged on all, on all fronts. I thank you that people were wanting, at least wanting to try to make decisions based on what they thought would hamper or would support missions. But I pray, Lord, help us to trust you. I, I appreciate what Asbury said, that, that we should probably take a step back and just let you be God. Lord, I, I pray, help us to love you well, to love one another well. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to look at our contexts, our situations, and just ask what you would have us as individuals do. And help us to glorify you and honor you in those, in those actions and those decisions. In Jesus' name.